Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 18. Thank you for being here. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review to help us grow our audience. If you want to support in other ways, visit artisticfinance.com to become a patron or check out our swag store. Today's guest is costume designer Cynthia Winstead. She has designed at the St. Louis Black Repertory Theater and at 59 East 59th Theaters in New York City. For the past 30 years, she has lived in Springfield, Missouri, and taught costume design at Missouri State University. She has advised design students on countless shows and has herself designed many shows at the university and its Summerstock Theater, Tent Theater. Cynthia is the coordinator of the BFA Design, Technology, and Stage Management program. That job entails organizing the annual portfolio review in New York City each spring. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Cynthia Winstead, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. We are actually re-recording this because we recorded a version way back in April or May, and you know, just 2020 has been crazy. So we're doing it again. Yeah, it was, uh, what, the last time I talked to you was about 50 years ago. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so could you give us a brief recap of your life and career and how, how you got to where you are right now? I was born in Ohio. My dad was in the military, and then he went to graduate school, and uh, we ended up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I did most of my schooling, and uh, I went to Western Kentucky University uh, to a BFA program in what they then called Performing Arts, and uh, it was one of the very first BFA programs. I thought I was going to be a dancer, figured out real fast that wasn't going to happen. Uh, wasn't competitive enough. <laughs> I had to take a class where you had to do a crew and I already knew how to sew. So I said, well, put me in the costume shop. The costume designer teacher put me on as a shop assistant. And uh, that summer I went off to my first summer job where I built clothes and I was a dresser and I was a pre-show singer and I was a backup dancer, and I was in one of the shows in a couple of small parts. We did all of that for $90 a week. <laughs> <laughs> so I judge all of my show, all my jobs based on my very first job. <laughs> and I think, well, I'm doing better than I did at Discoveryland. Yes, uh, I worked at Discoveryland Outdoor Musical Dramas. After that, I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia. After that, I started to teach. My first job was at Webster University in St. Louis, where I learned a whole lot from the Repertory Theater St. Louis. Uh, our shops were right next to each other. And then I went back to Virginia as a guest artist, and then I landed at Missouri State University, where I have been for 30 years now. I never thought I would l live to be this old. <laughs> I just couldn't imagine that. <laughs> That's funny. And so that's where I am now. Amazing. Amazing. And I should say to everybody, I went to Missouri State University and you were my costume professor. I know you from way back when. <laughs> <laughs> and I will also say that Missouri State is lucky to have you because you really push students to 
go work <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to like, just get your degree and then figure it out. You're like, no, no, you're here for theater. We're going to teach you theater and you are going to go out and work in theater or entertainment. You know, at least when I was there, you were like the scary professor because you made people do their work and you didn't let them cut corners. <laughs> so I don't know if you've, you know, gotten more laxed in, I won't say your later years. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Just recently, Missouri State is fortunate to have you. They won't realize it, but they'll be they'll be sad when you leave. I hope so. My 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 intention is always to leave a hard act to follow. So, you might think I have gotten soft, but I don't think that the current students think I have gotten <laughs> soft. So. <laughs> so now let's get to know your creative personality. What is a live event that you like to experience? Good theater, well-written, well-performed, well-designed. But I really, I really enjoy going to NFL football games. My husband and I try to go to a game. Uh, his favorite team is the New York Giants. Don't make a face. And <laughs> we try to go see the Giants play someplace every year. I plan the trip, and it's usually around some museum that I want to go see. Last year, I went to the National Pro Rodeo Finals in Las Vegas, and uh, love that. My, my people are all from North Texas. They are rancher, horsey people. Uh, my uncle is a former pro rodeo rider. Going into a big football stadium, even a, a basketball stadium that's been turned into a rodeo arena, you're going back to the Romans. <laughs> you know, that's the Coliseum. Uh, it doesn't ha hopefully doesn't have a preordained outcome, but that's theater. Yeah. <laughs> um. What is a piece of art that you like? It's it's more like what I don't like. I'm not real fond of medieval or the or the Renaissance. I know, boy, that's blasphemy to say that you don't like the Renaissance. I need to go to Rome and Florence and see it, and then I think I will like it. But I really like uh, into the 1800s, the Fendus of Clay, that part of the world. I very much like some of the major Swedish artists. My husband is Swedish, and I have gotten to go to you know, some of their homes, and uh, Anders Zorn, Carl Larson. You know, August Strindberg was a artist, and he hung out with those other two guys, Anders Zorn and Carl Larson. You know, we joke in my house that I know more about Swedish history and about Swedish stuff than my Swedish husband does. I believe that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the Swede by marriage. I, I really enjoy architecture, and you, you and I share a, 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 a real fondness for Calatrava, the Spanish architect. If I remember uh, knowing Calatrava got you into graduate school. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so grad school, I went to Southern Methodist University, and they have a Calatrava sculpture there. And I really liked it. So that's partially why I went down to school there. <laughs> it's called The Wave. It's really amazing. Did it ever work the whole time you were there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, I would say most of the time it worked. But to experience live, it's also interesting because it makes creaking noises. It's a bunch of bronze pieces. If you watch it silently, it looks very smooth. But in reality, it's like, you know, which has a whole different, different experience. You know, the visual doesn't match the noise. <laughs> So that's the kind of art I like. And, and when I think of art, I think of, of all of it, sculpture, painting, architecture, music, dance, theater. K-pop. You know, I, I don't mind a good piece of K-pop myself. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, you can d dance to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Where do you draw inspiration from for your designs and or 
where do you draw motivation from to design when you don't feel like designing? <laughs> One of the things that I have figured out is what my process is and how much time it takes me. I always have a really clean house when I'm working on something because I have to go away and do something and I may be cleaning, but I know my mind is working on it. And so, oh, I got to stop and vacuum for a while. So it's just what you've seen, maybe what's, what the directors mentioned or the choreographers mentioned, you know, doing some of the, doing the research, pulling out those books and, and looking at, you know, if I'm designing a costume for a character, you know, the one character who like just, boom, I know what they look like. Okay, let's build off of that. And it might not be the main character. You know, it, it might be third guy from the right. Especially if it's not if it's not coming easily. I I have various ways to approach these things. If you know, if you're not getting the information that you need from your production team or you know, the show is just not giving it to you. Like, you know, David Mamet gives you nothing. Yeah. Um what music do you listen to? So in the car, my presets are NPR. I listen to a lot of national public radio. One country station, two classic rock stations, one the best of the 80s and the 90s, and then about four current pop top 40. And I just switch in between all of those. <laughs> How much are you driving that you need that many presets? <laughs> Not very much. <laughs> but I have, you know, I have nine possible presets, so I might as well use them all. But I guess if things are on commercial half of the time, you really only have half of that to choose from. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm a channel surfer. I mean, I like Elton John, Earth, Wind & Fire. I was a big fan of Prince before he was, a, he was really a thing. I grew up north of Nashville, so I've always been uh, interested in country music, especially the women, Reba and Dolly and Loretta and Patsy. I love it that they all have first name. You just, first, they go by first name. <laughs> yeah. What are some of your hobbies? This summer, I've been walking the dog a lot. <laughs> I like to go to museums. I like to do craft stuff. I like to sew. To me, hobby sewing is totally different than work construction. <laughs> so, you know, in my, my mind, there are two totally different things, uh, which, you know, People say, you, 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 what, you go home and you sew after you've sewn all day? Well, yeah, because to me, it's a totally different thing. I've been, I've gardened a lot this summer. Our, our yard has probably never been as weed-free as it is right now. <laughs> Are museums open in Springfield? Springfield Public Art Museum is open. Wonders of Wildlife, which is run by Bass Pro, is open with limited capacity we're, we are back open to a, a certain extent. I, I do think that attendance has, has not rebounded. The Ozark Empire Fair was last weekend. It would have been a wonderful time to go to the fair because I don't think anybody went. Right, yeah. <laughs> that was your creative personality. Now let's find out about your financial personality. Could you describe your demographics to us? Okay, so I am a Caucasian female. I am married. I am 58 years old. I um, have BFA and MFA degrees in theater. Okay. Are you bad with money or are you a money wizard? I'm pretty frugal, good with money. Uh, I don't think I'm bad with money. 
Now, I say that on, you know, last week, due to various circumstances, you know, I spent a whole lot of money in one day. But... It happens. <laughs> yeah, it happens. But no, I've always, I think I've always been pretty, pretty good with money. All right, so a saver or a spender? Saver. And then are you risk averse or a risk taker? Uh, I'm pretty adverse. You know, if I go to a casino, I might lose a dollar. <laughs> 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 okay okay if i'm fairly certain that something is going to be a good bet then i guess i guess that's not really taking much of a risk is it if you know it's a good bet? no not a risk at all <laughs> <laughs> growing up did you have a good financial example i did uh my mother was an accountant growing up she still keeps the book at books at her church my father uh, was very much a product of the of the depression. Could get blood from a turnip, as they say, <laughs> cheap up until the very end. My grandparents were also products of the de- depression. You know, didn't want for anything, but but also did not leave live extravagant lives. And so I learned from them. The the day I was born, my grandfather opened a, a savings account for me at the Postal Credit Union in Wichita Falls, Texas. He was a letter carrier uh, for most of his life. There's always been that acknowledgement of finances in my family. Awesome. Um, at the start of your career, what did your finances look like then? Well, when I first started out, I was okay. I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of expendable income. I had had summer gigs and, you know, other theater gigs, but my first teaching job, I spent my entire first year salary in the first week because I bought a car and I signed a a lease on an apartment. So that added up to my whole first year salary. Now I had a car loan, but I did come out of school with only a thousand dollars in loans because that was way back when, and you could do that. I had, I had family help as when I was in school. So I, I did pretty good, and I had been so poor during graduate school that just to have anything extra was a great luxury to me when I first started to really work, you know. So I bought my first TV you know, <laughs> when I got that first job, and that was a huge deal to me. You know, it was a little bitty thing, but, uh, you know, it was, I had never owned a TV up until that point. And then, of course, there wasn't all this computer stuff back then. You know, we were, we were writing on the stone tablets. Of course. Awesome. Was there an event in your life that shaped your view of money? Well, I'd say that there are several events. Um, My first teaching job had a retirement 401k kind of deal. The first time that I put into that was followed by Black Monday. So I'm going back even before 2008. Mm-hmm. I think I had all of maybe $30 in that account, which then in one day it was essentially worth nothing. And I was like, whoa, this is, yeah, this is how this works. <laughs> 2008, there was a lot of overhire work. I was jobbing out for a lot of stuff, building things offsite and shipping them off to different theaters. And when 2008 came along, boy, that just dried uh, <laughs> it was like a, just a faucet turned off. And that was um, unfortunate because not only was that extra income, but it was, I enjoyed it. You know, being able to be a cutter draper at other theaters or our design. And then in my own family, you know, people have passed away with various stages of financial planning and wills. In my family, everybody has left good outlines of plans, but I have had friends that did not. If you don't leave an advanced directive or you don't leave a will, you, you make life hard on, on those who, who you leave behind. Th- those are very important documents to have. Even if you just 
you just write it out on a yellow legal pad and say, hey, I, I want so-and-so to get my book collection or a ring or this is where my bank accounts are and these are the passwords. And you give that to somebody that you trust. Or you, have, you, you, know, you appoint a power of attorney or an executor who you trust. My aunt uh, passed away. She was very particular about what she wanted to have done. Uh, she appointed an, an executor who did not do what she wanted to have done. I've always thought that was sad. I guess to me, it's, it's a culmination of life experiences that have just informed how things need to happen. And I think especially right now, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. Are unhealthy. Go on legal Zoom. You know you could do it the cheap way. Get your affairs in order uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. Pandemic aside, you can do it on legal Zoom very cheaply, but you can also just Google forms and fill them out and notarize them with witnesses, etc. So you can also do it for free. Right. Yeah. It does not have to cost a lot of money because it can cost a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't have to. Yeah. Everybody has something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A treasured possession. Or, you know, what's going to happen to your pets if something were to happen to you? Everybody's got things. Or, you know, if you are hooked up and you you don't show signs of coming back uh, to life, do you want to stay that way? Don't make other people make those decisions uh, and and have those conversations with with people so that they know. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is an important thing that I, I don't think we've ever talked about regardless of your age, make a will. Yeah. And you, you just have to do it one time. You, you can even do it in your 20s or your 30s, not touch it. And then if you don't touch it by the time you're 50 or 60, it's not going to be perfect, but it will at least be a guiding principle for whoever's left behind to deal with it. You, you know, you step out in front of a, a taxi in New York or things do happen. And uh, I don't personally find it morbid to think about that. You know, some people, oh, I don't want to think about dying. I don't. I just think that's being responsible to the people that are left behind. I agree because everyone will die. That's just a fact. <laughs> you know, you might think that someday there's going to be some kind of technology. So you want to have your head frozen. <laughs> my, my, my question is, what, what does your head go back on? You know, if they take off your head and they freeze it and, you know, for the future, what kind of body are you going to get? But I, I'm not going to have my head frozen. So I don't worry about that too much. <laughs> but I'm, I, I digress. Well, in COVID times too, we have another year at least of COVID. So not the worst time to be making a will, even though we all think we're invincible. It's not the worst time to make a will. It's, it's probably a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think, unfortunately, it is a very good time. Speaking of that, have you had any health challenges throughout your life? Not really. Uh, I was uh, hit by a car back in uh, 1990, uh, crossing the street, ended up several days in the hospital. Later, I was told, because I don't remember a great deal of what happened right after the accident, because I had quote-unquote, the good insurance, I got taken to the quote-unquote good hospital. This was in St. Louis. I still look upon that and think, that's very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I recovered from that. I I really, really hope that as part of of everything that's going on right now that we we figure out health insurance in this country. It's got to be done. Missouri just recently uh, voted uh, last week to expand Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. Uh, We were one of the few states who hadn't done that. 
As I mentioned before, my husband is Swedish, so I have some experience with, uh, you know, government-run health care. To have a situation where if something does happen to you, you don't have to worry about going bankrupt, as the Swedes do not have to worry about that, that's, uh, that's something. It is not perfect. Their system is, is, is not perfect, but that peace of mind, uh, I think is, is is priceless. I've had several former students who have actually gotten COVID and have been in the hospital. Thankfully, they have had good insurance. But as as one just was saying the other day, his bill for his stay was uh, was over half a million dollars. Oh, geez. Now he he has good insurance, so his his cost was somewhere around three thousand or something like that. A much better number than half a million. That kind of stuff makes me sick to my stomach to, to think about. Peace of mind, I think, is important. The, the people who don't support sort of universal health care or a public option, it, it doesn't make sense to me because like nobody's saying you can't pay for better care if you want it and or have money because money is what's important in this country. So nobody's saying you can't go buy more, but there should be something so that people don't have to choose between, oh, I'm not going to get my medicine. I'm not going to be healthy because I can't afford it. That's not something that should happen in this country. That should not even be a possibility. Uh, and, you know, my, my in-laws uh, would come to the United States from Sweden and, and would schedule medical things uh, because they, they didn't necessarily like what was available. So, that, you know, that was their choice. They, they paid for those things. They always bought uh, travel health insurance. And I know that you and Nicole travel abroad a lot. So even though you're young and healthy, I would suggest looking into some of those um, those policies because they're real cheap. But my mother-in-law fell and had an accident in, in my home in Springfield. Uh, had to go into intensive care. They always bought travel insurance when they left Europe. This was in 1999. And her her first week in intensive care was over 150,000. Wow. That travel policy covered things like they sent a nurse who came to Springfield who took her on the airplane first class back to Sweden and uh, at one point I was going to be doing all of that and getting her back to to Stockholm and I was a little apprehensive about that because I was like oh, I've never done this before with a a person you know, in a wheelchair, and, and she had a, a halo brace. It was this big thing they put on your head to support your head. So they sent this nurse, and boy, you know, she was wonderful. She was trained. She she knew how to do that. Knew who to call, and knew how to get the wheelchairs, and this, that, and all the, you know. And, and because my mother-in-law had been in, in hospital here, she had to go into hospital in, to quarantine. So she had to go be in that hospital for three days. Uh, yeah, this this person knew how to do that, and it was all paid for. So you, you might want to look into. You might want to look into that. Okay, we've never really thought about it. Well, one of my major professors uh, from graduate school got was on a cruise, and he uh, got sick. He was the boat was down in Cartagena, uh, and um, he actually had to be taken to the hospital off of the cruise boat uh, and um, uh, he, you know, and he had travel insurance and that paid for his daughter to, to go down there to help him. To me, it was just another example of peace of mind. This is not 
a bad thing to have. In hindsight, if you, if you knew you were going to get sick, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that two, that $200 extra, of course, we're going to pay it. But when you're planning a trip and it's like, oh, we're already paying X amount of dollars. Do we really want to pay 200 more or 400 more or whatever? Now you have us thinking again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it depends on where you go. You know, if you are traveling someplace where maybe the, the medical system is, is not what we as Americans would expect because, you know, we're incredibly spoiled. However, you know, if, if, if Hawken and I are going back to Sweden, uh, because I am married, he, he is still a Swedish citizen, because I'm married to him, then I would have access to all of, of, of that stuff. But if we're traveling to Russia, or even a place like maybe where we don't know the language very well, it's something to think about. It, I mean, it, it's, it does cost, and you're already paying a lot of money, and you don't want to. But Right, yeah. Do you worry or think about money on a daily basis? I don't worry about it, but I, I am very cognizant of money, yes. That's a Winstead family trait. <laughs> <laughs> when you have excess money, where do you put it? I have a travel savings account. I put it maybe into investing in my home or you know, something that needs to be done around the house or travel or paying off some bills. I don't carry credit card balances or try not to, uh, but a lot of it actually goes to travel. I like to go places. A couple of weeks ago, I just said, oh, I wonder how much a trip, you know, a plane ticket to so-and-so will be. And the website came up and said, oh, you're from the United States. You're not allowed to go there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, you know, American privilege. But I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> we, we have no idea where you were trying to go because literally it's five countries that we can go to. So you gave us no information on where you're trying to go, because, but it could literally be anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to stomp my feet and go, what do you mean you're not going to let me come there? <laughs> I know. Nicole and I, my sister is in the Navy and, and she's stationed in Spain and she has like a rented house with a pool. And Ooh. so Nicole and I are stuck in this tiny little apartment in New York City. And so we were like, okay, we'll just go to Spain for like three months and stay with my sister with a pool. Well, we haven't been able to travel there for X amount of months and probably not for X amount of months in the future. Well, you just don't realize how much we took for granted that we could move about freely. Yeah. So my father passed away last fall, and um, we were going to uh, have an ash spreading. Uh, he he has a very specific place he wants his ashes spread uh, in North Texas, and uh, and so we were we were making plans for that even back in January. And so we had decided to do it in, in May uh, because my sister was uh, working. She's a cruise ship entertainer. And, uh, and so we, and then all of a sudden, all of this happened. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, I guess May's not going to be there. And then we started talking about October. And I was like, oh, no, October's not going <laughs> to And so just yesterday, I, said, I, I, I just said, hey, you know, we'll plan it when we plan it. I, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, throughout your life, have you used a budget? At times, you know, I'll, I will write things down, but most of the time it's just in my head. I, I kind of have a, run, a running tally of where things are. Yeah. What is a fantastic financial decision that you have made? Not coming out of school with a lot of debt. 
And I don't know that that was a decision so much as a circumstance. Us buying our house when we did is worth considerably more now than when we bought it. What time or when did you buy it? We bought this house in 1998. So I had been teaching here in Springfield eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, Hawken had sold some property in Sweden. And so we had some available cash. And I live a block and a half away from campus. So um, I walk. It's, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. It's, just, it's very convenient. We went down to one car about three years ago. Because uh, we just we just didn't need two cars. The cars were getting old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that it's one major decision, but certainly a, a lot of a, a lot of small ones. That's great. It, that was twenty years ago when you bought the house. Have you paid it off, or are you still paying it off? Uh, still paying it off uh, because we've uh, refied a couple of times in order to do some improvements. I'm within five years of getting it paid off. Amazing! Fantastic. What's a terrible financial decision you've made? I don't know that it's been so much financial decisions as maybe just you know some career decisions. When I was in graduate school, I got offered to design the Nutcracker for the Washington Ballet uh, while I was still in school. I turned that down because I, I was overwhelmed by the idea of doing that. Interesting. <laughs> you know, I could have done it, but I didn't think I could at, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Then right after that, they wanted a fill-in teacher to come out to the University of Hawaii for a semester. Everybody in my family was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, do that." Uh, but I was just like, "No, I, you know, I have to finish this degree." <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't regret not doing those things, but I certainly think that my trajectory might have changed if I if I had done those things. When I was still in undergraduate school, I got offered a full-time job at National Theater of the Deaf, which does not exist anymore. I think back sometimes I wonder, you know, what would have happened if I had taken that job? I probably ne would never have finished school, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're definitely risk-averse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people in the theater who think that going into education is a cop-out. I was out in Santa Fe and... This other uh, person in the costume shop got a teaching job, and, and I, I didn't know her very well, but you know, we happened to be sitting next to each other or something, and I, and I said, well, you know, congratulations on your teaching job. And she was like, who told you that? And she was very defensive about it. And I, I was like, okay, yeah, there, there's the prejudice. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm a teacher. <laughs> And she looked at me and she, and she said, but you know what you're doing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not all hacks. <laughs> and, um, I think there's a good argument for it because it gives you a steady paycheck and you can do better art in a way because you're not always not getting sleep or just saying yes to every single job to pay your bills. You can actually sort of pick like, oh, I want to work on this show or this piece of art or whatever. Teaching is hard. Don't let anybody ever think that it, it is not in any level. Uh, every time I deal with high school students, I just go, I just look at my college students and go, thank God, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to do a lot and uh, you have to do a lot more than you used to have to. College is now an extension of high school. You deal with a lot more emotional things, a maturity things. The outcomes are very much analyzed and you know they, they need to be there. We, we get asked about it all the time. What are your students doing? Where are they working? What's this? What's that? You know, I'm very fortunate. I have, a, I have students who are working and I, I can brag. 
you know, not everybody can do that. It's not a cushy gig. <laughs> not if you are not not if you are doing it correctly. Oh, there's all the teachers now that are listening that have cushy gigs are like, ooh, she caught us. <laughs> <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm not digging a ditch. I'm not out in the heat. I am doing something that's it's different all the time. Yeah, it's teaching somebody how to thread the sewing machine for the 50 millionth time, that can get a little tiring. But when they get it, that thrill of seeing somebody being proud of what they've done is still just as fresh as it was the first time. You know, we get holidays and in this pandemic, I haven't had to worry about not having an income. School's going to be hard. We classes start next week and it's going to be different. And I'm going to have to get used to a lot of new things, but uh, that's just how it is. So uh, W-2 income versus 1099. Is yours all W-2? Right now it is. In the past, it's been a mix of both. Do you file your own taxes? I should. It's not that hard, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only person on the podcast that has filed their own is from South Africa, and apparently it's like super easy down there. This is the United States of America. If we can make it more complicated, we will. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So now your retirement, can you just break down what your retirement plan is? What are all the financial aspects of it? So I have uh, an account with Missouri State Employees Retirement. The university puts in a certain amount of money. When I do retire, it will be based on what's called high five, the five years that you made the most money. So there's that. And then uh, when I first started teaching, I got an account with an independent company, which is called Teachers Insurance and Annuity, uh, T-I-A-A, and then slash CREF, C-R-E-F. And that's for people in research and education, higher education. It's a 401k. So the CREF side is stock, uh, and the T-I-A-A is an annuity. And you can choose how you put your money into the two different sides. It's very safe. It's very um, risk averse. <laughs> and anybody who's, who is outside of that, like my Edward Jones, so I have an Edward Jones account, uh, my husband and I do. My Edward Jones person hates my TIAA. She, she wants her to get her hands on it so badly. <laughs> she can't. If one of the deals is you can't take the money out until a certain time. Because, you know, us teachers, you never know what we might go off on a tangent and do. And then I have an Edward Jones account, which has uh, annuities, uh, mutual funds, and individual stocks. So there are those three things plus uh, Social Security. Then Hawken, uh, my husband, is um, retired uh, in Sweden, and so he draws a Swedish pension. Nice. How old is he, or how, how long has he drawn that pension for? He uh, Hawken is 68. And uh, he is medically retired. Uh, he has uh, some back problems. So he was uh, on the lighting design staff at the City Theater of Stockholm uh, for many years. And so he's been uh, medically retired since 1996. Is medically retired. Is that a Swedish thing? <laughs> that, that is a Swedish thing. I think you can medically retire here are it's you know, disability retirement, but it's uh, not as good. His, his medical retirement is, is, is not a huge windfall, but it is nice. <laughs> That's part of that uh, um, 
I don't want to call it socialism because so many people think socialism is a bad word, but it, it really is part of that, uh, that socialist ideal that exists in Scandinavia. I mean, people think government is a bad thing. It's like, wait, you can't have the Wild West. <laughs> we all decide like, okay, these are the rules we're going to live by. Government is a necessary thing. You want to drive on a street and you do expect people to stop at a red light. Yeah, a, a, a certain amount of government is, is necessary for an orderly society. Okay, digression. <laughs> <laughs> um, your Edward Jones accounts, are those retirement accounts or are those just brokerage accounts over there? The annuities are annuities, but... Uh, well, some of it is uh, 401k, I think, or that uh, what's the other one? Or IRA. Or IRA, yeah. There's a, there's a mix of accounts uh, and then some of it, you know, is, is brokerage accounts that's liquid. The stocks are not connected to retirement. Mm -hmm. I like to have stocks in, in places that, I, I mean, I do some research. I like to buy stock in places where I spend money. Your risk aversion showing through again. <laughs> 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 like I'm going to keep buying there, so they're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because Nicole and I, we just, we have a financial advisor and they just put it in index funds and we don't, we never say buy this, buy that. So we don't actually own like any specific stock. Hawken is not risk averse. He has a portfolio. I have a portfolio. So we both have a, a, a certain amount of, of say, you know, in, in uh, of course, our, 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 our Edward Jones person suggests things to us and she is very conservative. So uh, I could I could see her blood pressure go up when Hawkins suggests certain things. <laughs> I bet he owns Tesla, doesn't he? <laughs> no, but he owns a lot of Volvo. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't real hot on the Volvo stock at first, but now Volvo has done very well for him. <laughs> we own some Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And she, she wasn't real big on that. Uh, it's B stock. We, we, nobody can afford the A stock anymore. But Warren can. He, he just bought $5 billion. Oh, did he? Well, you know, he owns Dairy Queen, too. So. Oh, yeah. The amount of companies <laughs> that he owns through Berkshire Hathaway is in the hundreds. Maybe thousands, but certainly hundreds. <laughs> Parker wanted to buy some Berkshire Hathaway or Edward Jones person. She wasn't too hot on that. But then she started to look into it. Now she, you know, now she's she is a convert. She'll probably own Volvo by the time the next time we see her. But <laughs> she actually takes the tips from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> She's very good. I, 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 I am not degrading her work at all. She is very, very good. I think maybe we're a little more actively involved than most of her customers. Um, okay, so you have your retirement in stocks and bonds, annuities, all of that. And you own a home, almost own a home. Do you have any other investments anywhere else? Uh, No. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking. Ah, okay. That means a gold bar is buried in the backyard under a tree <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, that money in the mason jar in the uh, under the bed kind of person. Um, one of your previous podcasts, your guests talked about credit unions. I have three different credit union accounts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're essentially leftovers from other places that I have lived. None of them really have a, a lot of money in them. So that's essentially the, uh, the extent of our investments. That, that was Nina Goldman, a dancer, who was episode 11. Yes. Yeah. And um, when you say you have three credit union accounts, does that mean three separate credit unions? Three separate ones in, in actually in three different states. <laughs> And why, why do you have that? You just haven't closed them or you just... Well, the one I just inherited, uh, and it, it's in North, North Texas, 
the one is in Kentucky, the, in the town where I grew up. My mother ran the credit union at the university for many years. Uh, I had one of the first accounts ever in that credit union. When I got out of graduate school, they offered me a credit card. That was my first credit card, and I still have it. <laughs> but I have to have the credit union account in order to have the credit card. <laughs> and then I have one here in Springfield, Missouri, that um, is our, our, our travel our travel fund. Mm, got it. I'll probably close the one that I inherited from my father. I'm not real sure because in a lot of states, if you have accounts that don't uh, have activity in them and it has to be certain kinds of activities, the state will seize those assets. I am just not going to give any money to the state of Texas that I don't have to. Right. <laughs> I, I still have to be and Kentucky is the same way. So I, I have to be actively involved with those accounts. Uh, my my father's account at that credit union is account number three. Wow. I wouldn't be surprised if my grandfather was account number one and my aunt was account number two. And so there's a sentiment there's a sentimental attachment there. Yeah. I had my own when my grandfather opened it, that credit union for me, and I did close that some years ago. But now I'm kind of like, oh, gosh, you know, it's account number three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who else can <could> say that? <laughs> That's awesome. This question might not make sense because you teach mostly, but what has been your most financially lucrative job? Well, anytime that I, I go someplace and I drape or, you know, I cut or drape or tailor because those tend to be the, the best paying jobs in any costume shop. But the, the, the teaching job is definitely, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting about the draping, though. Uh, how much of your success has been hard work versus luck? I think it's luck, but then it's hard work that keeps you where you are. When I started to teach in St. Louis, the luck factor of that was that I was right next door to a professional theater. You know, that costume shop man manager saw my work. You know, it was like built-in job, built-in overhire. I didn't have to work my way up like other people might have had to do because I had I had proven myself already. That was a lucky aspect of that job that I didn't really foresee going into it. And then it was lucky because I got to be there and I got to see, you know, some pretty hoop-to-do designers come through. The people who worked in that costume shop or just were some of the are some of the best in the country still are and were at the time when I was right next door. It was a very wonderful postgraduate education that I just kind of stumbled into. <laughs> I, you know, I had two teaching offers and I took St. Louis because it was closer to where I wanted to be geographically. If you can talk about, I want to talk about scholarships and endowments. Uh, okay, so you have the Brad Ferguson Scholarship. Yes, I am the overseer of that. Yeah. And Brad Ferguson was somebody that worked in the costume shop when I was at school there. And a couple years after I left, he died of cancer. And so anytime Nicole and I donate to Missouri State, we put it in the Brad Ferguson Fund. Can you tell us the nuts and bolts of forming that scholarship? So the scholarship is administered through the Missouri State University Foundation, which is a separate financial entity uh, outside of, of the university. A lot, uh, I think all universities have foundations now. So what you do, uh, you know, you, you go to 
the foundation and you say, I want to start this scholarship. And we started this scholarship back in about 1994. All the faculty were really being encouraged to start uh, scholarships. And so Lou Bird, who was also in the costume shop, uh, doesn't teach with us anymore. He's up in St. Louis. But we started the scholarship uh, and we just called it the costume shop assistant scholarship at the time. We put money into it, so there's what's called an endowment amount or point. You have to have enough money in the account, and then once you hit that, then the interest is what generates the scholarship award. Over the years, that endowment amount went up rather substantially, and we were just churning along, putting little bits of, doing different things to put little bits of money in there. And because we were so actively doing that, they allowed us to stay at the lower endowment point. But some scholarships that got started and then nothing happened, they they didn't allow that. So part of that interest goes to the scholarship, part of it goes to the foundation, which pays for the people who work at the foundation and, you know, their toilet paper and lights and utilities and all that. It is a federal law that you have to give out these scholarships after a certain point. Uh, they can't just sit there forever. Once you make endowment or, or even if you haven't made endowment? Once you make endowment, you have to give away the interest. Okay. Somebody figured out a long time ago that if you didn't give out the interest, then like all the money in the world would be in these endowments. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the whole story, but, but these are just, they've just become these juggernauts of money that would be unwieldy, would cause cause chaos. You need velocity of money. You need it to move. It doesn't do any good if it's just sitting there. Exactly. So then Brad came on board. He was our costume shop manager and he helped me. We we made fantasy dresses for people, costumes that they wanted, and we would donate our labor costs to the scholarship. And when he got sick, it became obvious that he was, he was not going to live. I decided that um, I wanted to named the scholarship after him. And so he actually, he, he knew that before he died. I asked him, I said, yeah, are you okay with this? And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm very honored. When he passed away, he stipulated that he wanted, in lieu of flowers, you know, he wanted donations to his scholarship. And so that's how we, ma- we made endowment. So we actually gave the first uh, scholarships uh, out of that account uh, the spring after he passed away, 2014. He he died in 2013. His mother, Suzanne, who was also a, a big theater supporter, and she passed away this past January, and she did the same thing. Uh, this spring and summer, we have gotten uh, numerous donations uh, to the scholarship fund. It's one of the actually larger scholarships that our department has to give out. Do you know what the number was for endowment? that you had to reach? $5,000 uh, way back when. And uh, now, the last I knew, it was 25000 So for Brad's, were you already at endowment before he passed, or did you reach it after? We were almost there. After he passed away, we reached it and went way over. Did you reach the twenty-five number or the 5000 number? Uh, we reached the 5000 Today, do you know what it's at? What level it's at? The amount that I know of right now we were just a little over 15000 So that's principal. That's, that's principal that then generates the interest that makes the scholarship. 
if I were to go to the foundation today and say, I want to start a, a scholarship, I would have to pony up 25000 When I think scholarship, I think somebody has to give 100000 or like $500,000. 25000 is actually quite, uh, it's a reachable goal. Yeah, it is. It is a reachable goal. Our thought was always that we wanted this scholarship to like pay for a whole semester. It doesn't yet. <laughs> it's tied to the stock market. So it is possible for those accounts to be what they call underwater, which means they don't generate any interest. There's fees and costs associated with keep upkeeping it. The interest would go to pay those and that would make it underwater. Yeah, that would. We've had that situation, not with this scholarship, but we have other named scholarships in our department. And uh, there have been years uh, around 2008, we, we had nothing to give out. You can't touch the principal. Okay. Well, 25,000, I mean, you, you know this because we've talked, but like the minimum investing units on like Broadway shows or films and TV is usually $25,000. It's a lot of money, but it's an amount of money that people invest in things. They could take that and instead of putting it in something that's going to bring them personal return, they could choose to make a scholarship on their own. More, more of a feel good return versus an actual money return. <laughs> Yeah, and and it, I will tell you, it's a it's a feel good return. It's, it's something that I'm very proud of. And if I suddenly had a huge windfall of money, I would put enough in there that it would generate a whole year of tuition. Tuition keeps going up, so <laughs> that's 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 kind of a problem too, you know. Uh, yeah, but it's also a, like an achievable number for if if someone in their will, you know, they wants to put, they're like, okay, I'm gonna, have, I'll have, 20, hopefully, you know, assuming everything goes well. Nicole and I assume we'll have more than $25,000 left when we pass away. So it's also something that's like, oh, I can throw that in my will. I don't need to put $400,000 in. I can, you know, whatever's left, start a scholarship. And this particular scholarship has really been built by small, you know, small donations. The, the, the kindness of, of, of people with 25 here or 50 there or the $200 that it, we charge to make the king and I dress for a lady, you know, from the movie. Uh, and so it has added up. I'm always proud to to give it out. It goes to a student who works in the costume shop, has proven themselves to be a good worker, and they have to have at least a 2.5 GPA. And so it doesn't have to be a theater, uh, it doesn't even have to be a theater major. Yeah, that's great. Okay, just random question, because you haven't, you've reached endowment, so you don't, need to add would you still like sew costumes or sew a face mask for somebody if, if they wanted the money to go into the fund would you do that or are you sort of like not doing that anymore oh I, w I would do that if 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 i had time yeah yeah i would do that okay so if somebody comes to me and's like ethan i want an elsa dress off brand of course not an official disney's one <laughs> <laughs> i'll be like oh my gosh i know somebody that will you know sew it for you and put the money in a scholarship uh, well, the, the the labor costs. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, they'll for have to provide the material. They'll have to pay for the materials for too. A fee. Yeah, for a yeah. fee. Yeah. Oh, I, I would I would still yeah. do that. I'll tell them you'll also buy the material as long as you they reimburse you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I I, I, will, I will get the materials, but but the, those are those are factored into the cost. Yeah. Well, I'm working on growing the listener base here, so one day this might reach millions of people. So you might get inundated with requests for things. <laughs> I might. Uh, do you do you have any l listeners from Scandinavia? Norway. Uh, I don't think Sweden yet. 
there's another country that's not Norway. But yes, okay, I, I do have a few. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> not, not hundreds or thousands. Well, Scandinavia is Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, and the Faroe Islands. All right, there's another country that's not in Scandinavia then that I'm thinking of, <laughs> like Belgium or something. <laughs> I'm going to cut this part out so people don't realize I don't know geography. <laughs> but Norway we have. Well, I will make a I'll make my Swedish relatives listen once it's published. Another little tangent that I want to talk about is the Missouri State Portfolio Review which because of COVID you didn't have this year and likely won't have in, in the spring of 2021. Can you just tell us about that? Because you, for whatever reason, you head up taking the students every spring up to New York City and displaying their portfolios. Can you just tell us about that whole thing? We piggyback on the musical theater uh, showcase uh, event. For musical theater, they have to be seniors, but for design tech, uh, I say, get yourself up there and you can participate. <laughs> but those seniors do tend to be the ones who, who go the most. It's uh, over spring break. It's a what I, what I call a real adult trip. You have to get yourself up there. You have to find a place to stay. I do organize some th some things, but you know, you're, you're very much on your own. You don't have to do everything that we do, but th there are two command performances is what I call them if, if you're participating. And we put the portfolios and the resumes out at the Musical Theater Showcase. It's not the most wonderful venue to show those things, but I have to say that the people who come really do look at stuff and, and pay attention to us, and I really appreciate that. Uh, and then we do a separate event. I, I think of it as portfolio speed dating. We, we go to the, the lobby of, um, what's the name of the place? Shoot. Pershing Square Signature Center. Yeah. 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 It's, like a, it's like a complex of three theaters all in one, and there's a shared lobby. Yeah, it, which is a place you suggested to me. We, you know, we set up at tables, and I invite as many people, uh, alums, people that I know, you know, my school chums, people that I, I've worked with or the or, or rest of our faculty and staff have worked with. And you know, they just kind of drop in, go to the tables and talk to people and look at their stuff. Um, the, the students get feedback. In the past couple of years, then we've also instituted some shadowing opportunities. Perhaps uh, the stage management students may go and sit backstage with Steve Milosevic, who's one of our alums, who is a Broadway stage manager now. You, you have been kind enough to, to take students out to City Theatrical to play with the, the fancy toys, and you've been nice enough to get them some work on hangs, non-union uh, lighting hangs, which just makes me laugh because it's like, oh, you're going to New York and you're actually making some money. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I, I think... Um... That's a really good thing for students to experience. It is work. It is work for me. Uh, it, it's very pleasant work, I will say that. That's on top of all the other things we're doing. And you've, you've got to have teachers who want to do this. You know? And, and th these trips cost money. The school gives me a little bit of money, but it does not pay for everything. We do have a, a, a fund uh, that awards travel grants. Our former department chair, Dr. Bob Bradley, established, but we can always use more. Right. Yeah, exactly. What financial advice would you give yourself when you started your career or would you give somebody who's starting out right now? Save some money. Put a little bit aside anytime you can. 
It doesn't matter how much, just, just a little bit. And make a will. Make sure you know somebody knows where your accounts are, knows what the numbers are, and do that advanced directive. Okay, save money, make a will. Got it. <laughs> Is now a good time to study art? Anytime's a good time to study art. What, what, about, what about costume design? Good time still? Yeah, theater will come back, and I think it will be better on the other side. The cost the costumes are notoriously under underfunded, underpaid. I think that will be different in the future. I, a lot of people are going to leave the business, and those skills will finally be paid what they need to be paid. I hope. <laughs> That's good. That's optimistic and hopeful. I like it. Big cities are artistic hubs. With the economy now and everything going on, should artists move to big cities? If that's where the work is, then I think they almost have to. If there's nothing available to you where you are, or it's all for free, like it is in Springfield, (laughs) uh, you're going to have to. It's really not a choice. What can we do to stress the importance of finance and savings to fellow artists? Model good behavior. Uh, Tell them to listen to your podcast. Of course. (laughs) We cover more of that kind of thing in classes now. We recognize that it is important. Uh, We probably don't do enough of it. I know we don't do enough of it, but there's always the future. The days of being a a starving artist in a cold garret or attic, those are over. I think we've all been fed that stereotype and it's been romanticized. That's just not the way to live. That's not sustainable. Since the pandemic, a lot of people are giving away a lot of stuff for free, a lot of content for free. And and that's the curmudgeon in me. We all need to watch that. It's easy to do. People want you to give away your art for free. Not to make it about me again, but this podcast is free. (laughs) It is, it is. But But it does take work and time and money. But I, I actually recently started a Patreon, so we'll see how that works out for us. But anyway, <laughs> it's not out yet, but by the time your podcast is out, I will, I will have a Patreon. <laughs> what separates those that have a career in the arts versus those that never try or stop? Hard-headed tenacity. You just keep at it. You, you find the opportunities. The great thing about design tech is it's very diverse. You know, you've, you've got a skill set that can diversify may not be exactly what you want to be doing at this moment in time, but it will work. You know, you're just, you're always looking for the next gig. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I'm also on the Missouri State University website. Or just send me an email, you know, through uh, Cynthia Winstead at MissouriState.edu. Is there a place we can find out about Brad's fund or do we just, if somebody wanted to donate to it? Uh, That's also on Missouri State University's website uh, and you just go to scholarships. All the different named ones are on there. You can donate through the website. Easy peasy with your credit card. Yeah, after visiting patreon.com slash artistic finance, you then go to Missouri State that scholarship <laughs> fund. <laughs> okay, Cynthia, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. Oh, thank you. It's been terrific. That was our interview with Cynthia Winstead. My takeaways were make a will for money and health reasons, but more importantly, to make decisions easier for those left behind. It's the responsible thing to do. An endowment to provide a scholarship isn't necessarily a gargantuan amount of money. If many people band together with small amounts of money, it can get an endowment funded fairly quickly. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. 
Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steinle. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.